Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 6. I'm going to read um, Romans 6, 1 through 14. Apostle Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Father, I pray that you would give us what we need this morning as you speak to us through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, My guess is, and this is just an assumption, that most of us in here, in this room, regularly bathe. That's just an assumption. But running water is something that we take for granted. For most of the history of mankind, um, we've not had the luxury of running water piped into our homes, uh, to say nothing about hot water heaters. So hot showers, baths, They have become ordinary for us, but we would argue that it is good for us to participate in this regularly. It's good for the person showering, and it's especially good for the people around him, right? It's an ordinary thing that we do regularly to keep ourselves healthy and to maintain friends. Well, spiritually speaking, there are several several ordinary things that we also regularly participate in that keep us healthy as well. If, if someone were to ask you uh, to list the, the top few instruments of spiritual growth in your life, the, the top few things that have caused you to grow closer to Christ, what are those things that you would say helped you to grow? Most of us would probably list things like a, a daily quiet time, personal Bible study, maybe participation in a, in a small group Bible study, or 
maybe with one other person as an accountability partner. We might, we might list listening to sermons or the radio online. Or maybe even personal evangelism, sharing the gospel with friends and neighbors, or, or we might come up with other similar good and useful activities. In addition to those, there always seems to be some new fad for Christian growth, some key to unlocking spiritual renewal. You know, this kind of try this secret formula, pray this newly discovered prayer, or imitate this successful church or Christian celebrity and read his bestseller or whatever. In Christian circles, um, spirituality or piety, as it used to be called, in Christian circles, this is often thought of in in very personal, uh, individualistic terms. Something that I engage in for the sake of reaching my own personal spiritual goals. We often think of our relationship with God in in one-on-one terms. This is just between me and Him and has nothing to do with anybody else. As a result of this, the, the gathered kind of communal aspect of Christianity, especially the church, the word church is assembly, that's what it means. The assembly of the saints is often secondary in our thinking. And so the result is that the, the preached word of God, the ordinances or sacraments of baptism and communion, and a gathered corporate prayer, us praying together, they probably don't make the short list of the top instruments of spiritual growth for, for many Christians. But, but think about this for just a moment. In that for as many as believed in his name, God has given them the right to be called children of God. So if you have believed in his name, he has given you the right to be a child of God. And yet it's also a communal religion. Not only is it personal in that you have been given the right to be called a child of God, but it's also a communal religion in that God repeatedly states throughout the scriptures in his covenantal promises, he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. There's a a community aspect, an assembly aspect, a gathered people aspect in being part of the church, being a part of the assembly of the saints. Think of it in terms of who the New Testament was written to originally. So who were the letters to the Romans, the Corinthians, the Galatians, the Ephesians, the Philippians, Colossians, and Thessalonians all written to? They were written to churches or groups of churches. Paul wrote to individuals, Timothy and Titus, but he wrote about what? About pastoring their churches. Philemon, Philemon was written to an individual, but it was written to address what reconciliation within the church was supposed to look like. And it was read to the church. In fact, he instructed him to read it to the church. The books of Hebrews and James were written to scattered Jewish Christians who had fled because of persecution. Same for Peter's letters, 1 and 2 Peter. The original audience for John's letters, 1, 2, and 3 John, are a little bit less clear. But what is clear is that the first two, 1 and 2 John, were written to a group of Christians. 
And the third was written to a man named Gaius, or Gaius, who was probably a pastor, about issues in the church. Jude is written to those who are called, he says, to Christians. And then Revelation. The book of Revelation, which John says is written to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Take a minute and, and, and look sometime at the first several chapters of Revelation, where Jesus, through John's vision, addresses seven different churches in Asia. And notice when you do that in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, notice that Jesus either praises or criticizes or really calls to repent the entire church based on the spiritual life of the individuals in that church. Because individuals make up the whole. So we could say it this way, we, we will only be as spiritually healthy as each of us are. Here's the point. Christianity is a community faith. That's why you'll sometimes hear me use the phrase covenant community to describe us. We're in a covenant relationship with God and with each other. So yes, Jesus absolutely cares about you individually, but he has also called you into his church. And so the controversial statement that I would make today um, right here is this. There really isn't any biblical support for Christians existing outside of the church. And I don't know how possible it is in the long run. Christians need the church. We need one another. We are called to, to do a whole list of one another's. And that is within the church, this is the people that we live with and worship with. And so while God does sometimes use those things that I listed earlier, like personal devotions and Bible studies and Sunday school, etc., as he uses them to, to, to grow our faith, biblically, according to the Bible, it is the preaching of the word, the ordinances of baptism and communion, and prayer that God regularly, ordinarily uses to nourish and nurture the faith of his children. It is those things that we are calling the ordinary means of grace. When Jesus was preparing to ascend to heaven, his final words recorded in the gospel according to Matthew are these. He says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we could say that just like the Lord's Supper, which we looked at last week, baptism is a sacred ordinance of the church, ordained by Jesus Christ himself, commanded baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so this morning we're going to look at the, uh, the topic of baptism as an ordinary means of grace. But before we proceed, I want to acknowledge an important point, or maybe two points. The first is that we all come from different backgrounds in here. Um, and as we work through this topic, we need to do this in a, in a loving and charitable way. What does the Bible say? 
And so as I go through this, I'm going to explain what I believe the Bible teaches, and what I believe the Bible says about this, and I want to encourage you, as, as always, I want to encourage you to search the scriptures for yourself to see if these things are true. And if they are then, how does it affect you and your standing before the Lord? The second acknowledgement is a little bit more doctrinal in nature, and that is this. I believe that baptism is for believers. I'm going to paint that picture here in just a moment. Baptism is a, because it's a sign of the new covenant. It's an outward expression of an inward faith. It is symbolic of entering into the new covenant with Jesus Christ because it's an outward sign of, of, beginning of uh, the beginning of your salvation. I, I would argue that baptism is for believers, those who have entered into um, salvation. So this is our first question for today. Who are then the subjects of baptism? Who, who is it that should be baptized? So I would tell you that the New Testament pattern of baptism, I'm going to give you a glimpse of this pattern here in a moment, but I would argue that this is what we call believer's baptism. And so we are, hear me carefully, we're credo-baptists here. And, and that just means that we are, that for those who have confessed with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and believed in their hearts that God raised him from the dead, they then are saved. So the Bible teaches that those who have given a, a credible, a reasonable evidence of repentance for sin and a belief in Jesus Christ for salvation, that they ought to be baptized as a matter of obedience to Jesus' command there in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples, baptizing them. And so baptism is a symbol of the beginning of the Christian life and should only be given to those who have, in fact, begun the Christian life. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. See if you can see how baptism represents this. Just listen to this. Titus 3, 4 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so baptism is a symbol of the beginning of the Christian life. So let me give you a glimpse of credo-baptism, of believer's baptism from the scriptures. The first argument that I would propose is this. In, in the narrative, in the story of the New Testament, baptism always follows salvation. Baptism always follows salvation. So Jesus has issued his final command to his apostles at the end of Matthew, the, the Great Commission, go therefore. He says, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so what do they do? Well, if you read through the book of Acts, we studied this a few years ago, if you remember, if you follow through the story of Acts, they go and make disciples. They take him literally. Peter brings the good news, and, and in response, Acts chapter 2, verse 41 says, those who received his word, that is the preached word of God that Peter proclaims to them, those who receive his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. 
I like the King James there. That's Acts 2.41. I like the King James. It says that they gladly received. They gladly received. So in Acts 2.41 in the King James says this. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. They gladly received. I think this is a better description than just simply received because it's explaining what is happening in their hearts. It, it literally means to take fully, gladly receive, to take in fully or, or to welcome, to approve, to accept, to gladly receive. It wasn't just that they heard the preaching of the good news. It wasn't just simply that they were in the room while Peter was speaking but that they accepted, they gladly received and approved of his message. They welcomed the message of the good news of Jesus Christ like a hot shower after years of no running water, after years of the power being out. They gladly received, they stood and they soaked in the good news of Jesus Christ. If you were to jump ahead in the book of Acts in chapter 8, verse 12, we read, but, but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. When they believed as he preached, and they were baptized, they heard the preaching of the word, they believed in Jesus Christ, and then they were baptized. This is the pattern of the New Testament. One more, Acts chapter 10 Verse 44 to 48 says this, While Peter was still saying these things, that is, he was preaching the word, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. They were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Because Peter took Jesus' commands literally. His command was, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. The point is that baptism is appropriately given or administered to those who have received the gospel and trusted in Christ for salvation. Well, the second argument that I would make for a believer's baptism from Scripture is from the meaning of baptism itself, from the meaning of the word and the concept. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. So if you're not already there, turn back to Romans chapter 6. Just pick up verses 3 and 4. Romans 6, 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So baptism itself, the action of baptism, is a, is a visual portrayal of our spiritual death to sin, our symbolic burial with Christ, and our resurrection with him to walk in newness of life. Paul says. Incidentally, this is also why I believe that the, the mode of baptism by immersion is important. It, it's symbolic of our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. 
And I believe it's important that it be done in the context of repentance and faith. Because if you have not, if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Christ for salvation, the Bible says you cannot be saved. And if you continue to live a lifestyle of unrepentant sin, then they're showing evidence that you have not been saved, whether you've gotten into the water or not, frankly. Look back, though, at Romans 6, just verses 1 and 2. We're going to skip around a little bit today, but look at verses 1 and 2. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? This is an important question. It's a question that we all have to wrestle with. How can we who died to sin still live in it? See, Paul is saying that if we don't understand what it means to die to sin, then we can't understand even what baptism means. And baptism marks the beginning of the Christian life. It really is being immersed into Christ. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that in order to be baptized then you must understand every theological point of the order of salvation. I'm not saying that you must understand everything about the differences between justification and sanctification, uh, between the differences of propitiation and, and expiation. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that you have to have every bit of theology worked out in your own mind in order to be saved. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that you need to be able to give a a credible profession of faith. You need to be able to say, I believe in Jesus Christ. I trust Jesus Christ. You need to be able to, to demonstrate repentance. What does it mean to be a changed person? You need to be able to say, I believe that I'm a sinner and that Jesus Christ died for my sin and I am willing to do anything to show you that. I am willing to do anything to prove my repentance. And so the first question that we should ask someone who comes to us and says, I want to be baptized, one of the first questions we should ask is, do you know what it means to die to sin? Do you know what it means to die to sin? I haven't always asked this when someone has come to me for salvation, but I should make it my own regular practice. Do, do you know what it means to die to sin? Do you realize that in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, whenever someone would come to Jesus asking for eternal life, he actually made it hard for them to believe? Have you ever thought about that? He said, you have to take up your cross daily in order to follow me. That's a hard thing for them to understand, especially when they would see regularly people taking up a cross because of the Roman government. He also said, take all that you have, sell it, and give the money to the poor, and then come and follow him, but only after you have fully and obediently kept every word of the law. To the Jews, that would be next to impossible. He also responded at one point, he said, The foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you prepared to follow him there? He said in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, he said, if, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
You remember what he said in John chapter 6? This was hard to understand and made it hard to believe. He said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And that, that verse, John 6, 66, says that from that point on, many stopped following him. So, do you know what it means to die to sin? How can we who died to sin still live in it? It means that you are dead, you're dead to the persuasive love for and the ruling power of sin in your life. So if you're a Christian, you need to understand that the mastery of sin over your life has been broken. The mastery of sin over your life has been broken. That doesn't mean you no longer sin. Paul will even say in Romans chapter 7, repeatedly, I do the things that I don't want to do. He talks over and over about his own sin. But then he says in Romans 8 chapter 1, the very next verse, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That means that the mastery of sin over you and the condemnation, the the punishment of sin in our life is gone because of Christ, if we are in Christ. And so our normal patterns of life as Christians should be progressively growing in Christ. That's what sanctification is. It is progressively growing in Christ. We need to be growing in maturity and being conformed to the image of Christ. And so going into the water, getting down into, this is a hot tub, right? Getting down into the hot tub and going down into the water is a visual reminder of the fact that we as Christians are dead to sin. And so when we go under the water, it is going into the grave. It is reminding one another, the person going down and the people watching It is reminding us that we are dead to sin. If this were uh, a funeral, if there was a coffin here when you walked in this morning, you'd know what it meant. You would know as soon as you saw it what it meant. You might be a little surprised walking in on a Sunday and having a coffin in here, but you'd understand what it meant. It would be a visual reminder even of your own mortality, right? Right? That's what baptism is. It's a visual reminder that we are all dead. We are either dead in our trespasses and sins, or we have died to our trespasses and sins. Baptism, particularly baptism by immersion, going down into the water, is a powerful visual picture that emphasizes our own dying and raising with Christ. A new believer going down into the water is a picture of going down into the grave and being buried. We are dead to sin. I'm harping on that because we need to understand that. We are dead to sin. If you are a Christian, if you have trusted in Christ for salvation, you are dead to sin. But then we come up out of the water. We come up out. And coming up out of the water is a picture of being raised with Christ, being resurrected with Christ, being, being given new life with Christ in, in, in Romans 6, 4, in order to walk in newness of life. Look at this verse again. We were buried, uh, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
And so if, if we have been buried with Christ, then it's also true that we have been united with him in the resurrection. There's a newness to our lives. We are now changed people. We are now converted people, regenerated people. Again, in Romans chapter 8, there's a past tense that I want you to see. I want you to hear. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, the Apostle Paul says, For those, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And verse 30 says this. Look at the past tense in all of these. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Past tense. We wait for that. We wait for the moment when we are glorified. That's when we get to heaven. We wait for the moment when we are out of these bodies that are racked by the effects of sin. We wait for the moment when we have resurrected bodies like Christ did. But he writes it in the past tense because it's as good as done. We will be glorified. Listen to the picture of resurrection from Ezekiel chapter 36. Uh, regeneration, really. Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27. The Lord says this. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Baptism very clearly uh, pictures death to our old way of life and a resurrection to a new life in Christ, new heart. It's a picture of repentance. It is a picture, it is seeing the gospel. Baptism, and actually even watching a baptism, is a visible reminder of the good news of Jesus Christ. I would argue that baptism, along with the Lord's Supper, are the only the only visual arts appropriate for a genuine worship service. Um, they're the only dramas that the Bible allows us, actually. They're God-ordained dramas, if we could put it that way. God has mandated that we see certain things, that we hear certain things. He has mandated that we taste certain things, that we touch certain things when we come to Him in worship. We don't need icons. We don't need images. Frankly, we don't, we don't need video clips or skits or slideshows. We need the gospel. We need the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to hear the, the gospel proclaimed in the word of Christ. We need to see the gospel in the elements of the supper. We need to see the gospel in a person getting wet, being washed free from their sin and raised to walk in a new life in Christ. We need to remember that baptism is not merely beneficial to the person being baptized. It's also a reminder to the assembled people of God, to the church of all of these things. It's a reminder that, that I too am dead to sin. It's a reminder that, that we've been washed clean. 
It's a reminder that we are, we are no longer condemned. We, sin no longer has power over us. We all who have trusted in Christ have been raised to walk in a new life. Unless you haven't been. Unless you haven't been. I don't want to take for granted this morning that everyone in this room is a believer. I don't want to take for granted this morning that all of us have trusted in Christ. And so if, if you have not repented of your sins, if you have not run from your sins and trusted in Christ for salvation, I am pleading with you today. Today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Acknowledge your sin before a holy God. Ask for his forgiveness because our God is a merciful God. Our God is a merciful God. Psalm 86 verse 5 says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. And then down in verse 15, Psalm 86, 15, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Whenever we observe a baptism, whenever we have a baptism here, it reminds us also of God's covenantal faithfulness, of his faithfulness. Listen to Hebrews chapter 8, um, verses 8 through 12 is actually a quote from the book of Jeremiah. The writer of the preacher of Hebrews says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Our God is a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so some kind of practical considerations this morning. We've kind of been a little bit all over the place speaking of this, but I want to say these things. First is that water baptism, getting in the water, is not salvation. But it is an evidence, it, it, obedience to the command by God concerning discipleship. It is evident that you are obedient. Jesus gave three commandments in that great commission in Matthew 28. He says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. According to Jesus, the first step in the, in the discipleship process, the first step when he says, go and make disciples, the first step is baptism. Why do you think that is? Well, 
Not only does it signify our identifying with Christ, but it also shows a willingness to obey Jesus no matter the cost. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, Paul compares godly grief versus worldly grief. So he compares genuine repentance versus a worldly sorrow. He says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Paul is saying here that a logical evidence of a, of a saying that I'm a Christian, of a, of a credible profession of repentance and faith, a logical evidence is a willingness to obey Christ no matter the cost, even to publicly proclaim that they have been baptized into Christ. And the second kind of practical consideration is this. Since baptism is symbolic of entrance into the covenant community of Christ, the church. It ought to be done in the presence of the covenant community of Christ, in the presence of the church. Because baptism is not just for the person being baptized, but it's also a celebration for the church to be reminded of the gospel. In other words, baptism isn't just a private thing. It's a public proclamation that a person has been baptized, has been immersed into Christ. And I want to acknowledge, because I know your stories, I know your testimonies, I want to acknowledge that there are times when there are extenuating circumstances. So I'm not trying to nullify anybody's baptism. I don't want anybody to leave here thinking that. I'm just trying to point out what the Scripture teaches. And the last practical consideration that I would leave you with this is a question that you might have. The question is this, should someone who is baptized as an infant, as a young child, be re-baptized? And so I'm going to answer that question with a question, of course, a um, question for you to search the scriptures with. What do you believe God's word teaches? What do you believe God's word commands? So, so I'm asking you to take all that you've heard me say today and go back to the scripture and see if these things are true. What do you believe God's word commands? How has your conscience been impacted by these commands? To paraphrase Martin Luther, maybe, dare I say, fix what he said just a little bit, to go against what you believe God's word commands is neither right nor safe. To go against what God's word commands is neither right nor safe. But as you search the scriptures, answer these questions. Was your baptism a sign of your faith? Or was it a sign of somebody else's faith? Remember, every baptism in the New Testament was a believer expressing his or her own faith. Salvation cannot be hereditary. Salvation cannot be hereditary. And then the second question is, why do you want or not want to be baptized, really? Why do you want or not want to be baptized? Often what I have found, and even in my own life, the answer to that question, I know this is true for me, was true for me for a long time, the answer to the question is pride. That's the answer to the question. But genuine repentance leads to a desire that will, to do whatever is necessary to get into God's good graces through obedience to his commands. 
Baptism can't save you by simply getting into the water, but being immersed into Christ is what saves you. And if you are immersed into Christ, then we are, he says that he gives you the desire to obey his commands. And when we as a church are obedient to him, when we are participating in the ordinary means of grace, these average, ordinary, every week we get together and do, when we are obedient to him, he will nurture and nourish our faith. And as a result, as he has promised, Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's pray together. Lord, there is um, a lot of information today. But we can see the promises. The promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. Father, I praise you and I thank you for that promise. That you have and will continue to gather to yourself a people for your own possession. A people who have been created for good works people who have been redeemed from their sins and are now cloaked with Jesus' righteousness. Father, I pray as we consider these things, as we work through what your word teaches, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, that we would be transformed by the renewal of our minds, that our, our minds would change that our hearts would would change, that our affections would change, and that we would be obedient to your commands. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.